In the book of Proverbs, King Solomon writes, There is gold, there are plenty of rubies, but lips that speak knowledge are a priceless jewel. There is no question, knowledge is extremely valuable. It was during the time of Solomon, and it is just as true, perhaps even more true today. Just compare the average wages of doctors to graduate students, or the incomes of those with bachelor's degrees versus high school diplomas. Knowledge is often a key ingredient to obtaining material wealth. And this isn't only true for individuals. It can also apply to organizations and societies as a whole. Google and Facebook, for example, offer the majority of their users free internet services. And yet, these companies are worth all kinds of money based largely on the knowledge they are continually processing. Google, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet Inc., has used the knowledge it processes to become one of the top 10 largest companies in terms of stock value. It is a market cap of roughly $1.6 trillion. Facebook, who gathers knowledge about you, its users, also ranks among the top 10. And yet world-renowned companies such as McDonald's with its Big Mac and special sauce, who serves roughly 68 million customers per day, doesn't make the list. Ford Motor Company also doesn't make the top 10. Its market cap of $45 billion is less than one thirty-fifths of Google's. Now to put that discrepancy in terms you can better relate to, consider having $450 in your wallet compared to $16,000 in your wallet. I don't even think my wallet can fit $16,000. But that's the size of the discrepancy between Ford, who sells automobiles, and Google, who gives away free internet services, market value. Knowledge is incredibly valuable. But it's not just valuable for obtaining material wealth. It is also important for a nation's and or an individual's well-being. In Hosea chapter 4, please turn there to Hosea chapter 4, the prophet Hosea describes how the children of Israel are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. Now, it's not a lack of knowledge of warfare or construction or producing material wealth that's the issue, but a much more important type of knowledge the Israelites are missing. Reading now Hosea 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint. Dropping down to verse 5 now, Hosea 4, verse 5. Therefore, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This passage in Hosea naturally speaks to the Israelites of the past, but is also a prophecy about the modern-day nations of Israel, including the United States and Great Britain. Like the Israelites of old, the people of these countries have largely turned from God, and because of this, they stumble, much like a drunk man stumbles with intoxication even during the daylight hours. Of course, this doesn't mean these nations don't prosper for a time. 
Rather, Scripture indicates the prosperity of the nations will increase before crashing down. Verse 7, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. The truth is, knowledge that is rejected will be forgotten. Knowledge that is not treasured will fade and eventually be lost. And lost knowledge, at least the knowledge of God's laws, will eventually spell a country's demise. Now, a few years ago, I was asked to help drive a knowledge management program at work. In case you're not familiar with knowledge management, knowledge management is the process of capturing, sharing, and effectively using an organization's knowledge. Or to put it simply, it's about acquiring the right knowledge and getting it to the right person at the right time. As part of this knowledge management responsibility, in April 2018, I attended a two-day conference in Houston specifically dedicated to this topic of knowledge management. During those two days, I sat through numerous presentations describing various ways companies capture knowledge and then use that knowledge to help drive their business. I also sat through one presentation by quite literally a rocket scientist that really spoke to how important it is for a company to preserve the knowledge they've acquired. The presentation was titled, We Don't Dare Forget How to Stick a Landing, and it was delivered by David Oberhadinger, who is NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory's Chief Knowledge Officer. In his speech, Mr. Oberhadinger, who I'll call Mr. O for short, explained that when NASA builds a billion-dollar spacecraft, they typically only get one chance to get it right. I mean, can you imagine spending a billion dollars to launch a spacecraft or a rocket and then seeing all that investment going up in flames? Or to see the spacecrafts miss the mark and be lost in space. You don't roll the dice with a billion dollars. The only way to get things right is to have the right knowledge used in the system design. Without good knowledge, the right knowledge, he explained, billions of dollars would be completely wasted. And in some cases, such as the Challenger disaster, lives lost. On top of that, the scientific data gained from spaceflight is often the primary purpose for the project to begin with. So if a project doesn't make sufficient investment to preserve the knowledge it obtains, why spend the money at all? The fact is, important knowledge can be lost. To illustrate this point, Mr. Oberhadinger took us back to the time of the Romans. He described how the Romans were amazing builders and architects. They built the aqueducts, the Colosseum, colonnades, the Pantheon, Palatine, and baths scattered across Europe. And did you know that many of these structures were only possible with the use of concrete? Of course, to build with concrete, the Romans had to have the knowledge of how to make concrete. Today, our world is still peppered with many ancient Roman structures, from Asia to Africa to Europe. But when the Roman Empire died in the 5th century A.D., Historians also noticed that the construction of concrete buildings curiously stopped. They claim that for almost a thousand years, the knowledge of making concrete was lost, forgotten with the death of an empire. In 1414, the manuscripts of a Roman architect named Paleo Vitruvius were discovered. His documents contain information about mixing concrete and eventually an interest in using this building material revived. 
1499, cement was used to build the pier of the Pont de Notre Dame in Paris, and it is considered the first modern use of concrete since the time of the Romans. It's really quite amazing when you consider it that for nearly a thousand years, the knowledge of how to make concrete, of how to make what has been described as the world's most important building material, was lost. In addition to talking about the Romans, Mr. Oberheidinger also showed us a famous picture taken from the Apollo 8 space mission. Let's see if I can turn this on here. There we are. You've all seen this picture, at least one very similar, called Earthrise. It shows a vibrant, colorful Earth in the horizon of a drab, pockmarked moon. He then said something that shocked me, and I'm sure it shocked probably nearly everyone there. He said, we could not take this picture today. We can't take this picture because we don't have the technology. Now, that doesn't mean NASA couldn't figure it out again. But the knowledge, some of the Saturn V rocket design documents, which enabled man to first orbit the moon during the Apollo 8 mission, and then land on the moon during the the Apollo 11 mission, have been lost. In fact, to rediscover that knowledge, about two decades ago, NASA resorted to reverse engineering old spacecraft parts lying around in salvage yards. It's incredibly fascinating when you think about it, that man could make it all the way from the Earth to the moon, but in a sense, they couldn't make the landing stick. The point is this. Preserving knowledge doesn't just happen on its own. It takes planning and effort and diligence. This is true for modern-day corporations, individuals, and society as a whole. It is also true for those of us in the church. Today I plan to talk about lost knowledge. We will consider some of the most basic knowledge our society has forgotten, why that knowledge is lost, and look at three key principles for people to retain the knowledge they've learned. Understanding how knowledge is lost can help a person guard against the pitfalls of losing it. You see, growing in knowledge and retaining the truth you've learned is vital to your spiritual well-being. It is only with the knowledge of God that a person can inherit God's kingdom. So in this message, when it comes to knowledge, I hope to help you make the landing stick. For those of you who want a title for this message, you can title it, Preserving the Knowledge of God. Again, the title is Preserving the Knowledge of God. Now, to explain the first way knowledge can be lost, let me start with an illustration. Imagine for a moment that you and your family are heading out for a week-long summer vacation. You can't wait to get out and hit that open road. You turn up the AC in your home, checked all the doors are locked, checked the oven is off, and allowed all the toilets to completely finish flushing. Everything seems good, or at least you think it's all good. As you leave the house and lock the door behind you, your wife is in the passenger seats and the kids are in the back. You start up the car and pull out the driveway just as your wife asks you, did you check the stove is off? Yes, I I checked it, you say, replaying the events in your mind. There's a brief silence in the car. You wind your way through the neighborhood and onto the main road. Are you sure you checked it? Your wife asks again. Yes, I'm sure, you respond firmly, this time a little perturbed. She's doubting you. 
You've now made it onto the interstate when your wife begins telling you a story. It just so happens to be a story about a friend that suddenly had accidentally left their stove on, which started a fire that destroyed their entire house. The whole house went up in flames. The family lost so many beloved pictures and memorabilia, not to mention all their possessions. Thankfully, no one was hurt, she clarifies. But it was a terrible accident taking months to get their lives back into order, all due to forgetting a one-second act of twisting an oven dial. You take a deep gulp. A disturbing thought suddenly hits you. What if, you ask yourself, what if I didn't actually check it? Could I have missed it? If I did, our whole house could be turned to ashes, our pet turtle burnt to toast, not to mention the loss of my prized collection of baby Yodas. <laughs> Losing those would be disastrous. Should I say something to my wife? You think to yourself. Trying to get a grip, you encourage yourself to say, no, 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 I, I know I checked it. I must have checked it. I couldn't have forgotten it, could I? As much as you try to reassure yourself, you can't help shake, you can't shake the thought. What if? You know, it's really unbelievable. Something you were absolutely convinced of a few minutes ago, you now doubt. The knowledge you once had, well, it's questionable. At this point, my advice to you would be to turn back and check that oven. Because no matter how convinced you were, you are going to enjoy your vacation a whole lot more if you don't have to listen to stories about houses burning down for the next seven days. Also, it would ease your mind and potentially save your marriage from itself going up in flames. Now, from this illustration, I hope you can see how a person can know something, but then lose that knowledge through the seeds of doubt. Point number one is, knowledge can be lost through the seeds of doubt. Again, point number one is, knowledge can be lost through the seeds of doubt. Now, perhaps you've experienced something similar in your life, a time when you felt very sure about something, but then a thought is planted that caused you to reconsider what you thought you knew. Of course, reevaluating what you think you know is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be an extremely helpful thing in solidifying your knowledge. Or even more importantly, it can help you correct an area you previously got wrong. But still, as much as reproving a matter can be extremely valuable, seeds of doubt can also be very dangerous. In fact, it's important to realize that Satan sometimes uses this tactic to cause people to stumble from the truth. To see what I mean, turn to Genesis 3, verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1. In this chapter, Satan cunningly plants the seeds of doubt for a very nefarious purpose. His purpose is the destruction of man. In this chapter in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3 contains what is potentially the most pivotal question in human history. Reading now Genesis 3, verse 1, Satan asks, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, he asks her, Has God indeed said? Has God indeed said? Now this introduces a very fascinating question. It's a fascinating question because it's the first question recorded in the Bible. And it's also the first time that Satan is mentioned. I submit that this question is very important because it unveils a key tactic Satan uses to deceive, to deceive man away from God's word. 
Has God indeed said? This question, it questions God, who he is, what he says, whether his words are true. It is not an innocent question, rather it is intentionally used to plant a seed of doubt. In our modern world, you can observe the product of this doubt when people say things like, well, the Bible's not an inspired work. It's been corrupted over time. Or when people say the Bible is just one of many ancient works filled with myths and legend, a work of propaganda, not historically accurate, artful, poetic, helpful, maybe, but God's inspired word and a key source of truth? No way, some say, not realizing they've fallen prey to the seed planted by Satan himself. Of course, the question Satan asks Eve here in Genesis 3, verse 1, sounds deceptively similar to something that God did indeed say. But there's a spin to it. Notice how Satan frames God's instruction. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Compare those words to what God actually did say in Genesis 2, verse 16. Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. The contrast in God's language versus Satan's language is important to consider. Notice how Satan implies God is somehow being stingy with them. You shall not eat of every tree, whereas God's language extols the vast blessings he's bestowed. Of every tree you may freely eat, but one. Although the words are consistent in their meaning, they evoke a much different feeling in the listener. Genesis 3, verse 2 now. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees, notice Eve, Eve used the plural, trees of the garden. But of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. After planting a seed of doubt, Satan outright lies to Eve. And then he goes on to suggest God's purpose for forbidding this fruit is because God wants to withhold something good. Satan's tactic works. Doubt in God's word is planted, And Eve looks at the tree to decide for herself what to believe, instead of trusting God's word. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of it its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Through lies and doubt, Satan undermines God's word. He deceives the woman into putting aside the knowledge God had given them to choose their own way, instead of obeying God. Point number one, again, is knowledge can be lost through the seeds of doubt. Dr. Hermann Ebbinghaus was a German psychologist who lived in the late 1800s. He's widely recognized for his pioneering work in the experimental study of memory, and especially for his discovery of the spacing effect, the forgetting curve, and for describing the converse of the forgetting curve, a concept known as the learning curve. Now, you've all heard of the learning curve, right? The learning curve is basically a way of depicting how an increase in learning comes with greater experience. The more you experience, the more you learn. Of course, the opposite of the learning curve is the forgetting curve. 
In his groundbreaking work titled Memory, A Contribution to Experimental Psychology, Dr. Ebbinghaus wrote this. He said, left to itself, every mental content gradually loses its capacity for being revived, or at least suffers loss in this regard under the influence of time. Facts crammed at examination time, that is right before the test, soon vanish if they were not sufficiently grounded by other study and later subjected to a sufficient review. But even a thing so early and deeply founded as one's mother tongue, meaning your native language, is noticeably impaired if it is not used for several years. In other words, what he is saying that when it comes to what you learn, if you don't use it, you lose it. Repetition is an important ingredient for retaining knowledge. Therefore, not only can you lose knowledge through the seeds of doubt, which was our point number one, knowledge can also be lost through a lack of use. Point number two is thus, knowledge can be lost from a lack of use. Again, point number two is, knowledge can be lost from lack of use. Turn to Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. Now, in this passage, God instructs the Israelites to continually keep his commands. One of the things that's interesting about this passage is, about, is how God links their obedience to his commands to remembering what he's done for them. Reading now Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act, act meaning do, according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe... Observe, again, meaning do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding. Dropping down now to verse 9, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Here God instructs the people of Israel how to retain the knowledge of him, and all he's done for them. If they don't keep his instructions, if they don't use them and pass them on to their children, the people will forget what an amazing and loving God they have. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. We'll start reading in verse 6. In this, in this passage, God further instructs the Israelites on how to retain the knowledge of his ways. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Preserving God's way is a continual process of recalling it and living it, keeping it in the forefront of your mind, in your heart, and in your daily routine. Repeated and continual use of God's way is extremely important to not lose that knowledge. Verse 12, then beware, this is a critical warning, beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. As you may know, I received my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering. In the latter portions of my studies, it was either my junior or senior year, I was given an assignment to write a research paper. Now, we had several topics to choose from, 
But I chose the topic of artificial intelligence and a specific type of artificial intelligence known as neural networks. In researching neural networks, I found it fascinating how scientists took information about the human brain as their model for developing intelligent machines. After all, people are intelligent. So why not investigate where their intelligence comes from and then build machines to replicate it? Well, that was their concept. And it turns out, it worked. At least to some extent it worked, a little bit. Modeling the human brain, computer scientists were able to build machines that could be trained to solve mathematical problems instead of explicitly programmed to solve them. For example, with an artificial neural network, you can take a computer and train it with multiple questions and answers, which is called supervised learning. Such as you can tell it, 2 plus 2 equals 4, or 3 plus 4 equals 7, and then ask it to solve an equation it has never seen before, and it will respond with a nearly correct answer. Such as you could ask it, what is 5 plus 5? And although the machine has never seen this problem before, it will answer something like 10. 0.00134256637. It's often creepily close, but not quite exact. Today, this use of artificial intelligence is rapidly growing. Neural networks are used in facial recognition systems, speech recognition systems, sales forecasting, risk management, weather predictions, failure predictions, among many other impressive technologies. Where I work, we are starting to use artificial intelligence to resolve faults in telecommunications networks and also predict where the next fault might occur. My point of this is not so much what man has been able to create by studying the brain, but how this understanding, though still extremely limited, also ex helps explain how memories are formed and information is recalled. You see, scientists discovered that the human brain consists of cells or neurons that fire electrochemical pulses to one another along neural pathways called synapses. Each individual neuron can form thousands of links to other neurons, giving the brain hundreds of trillions of synapses. The synaptic connections between the neurons is not static. The more signals that are sent between two neurons, the stronger the synaptic connection grows. And so with each new experience and each remembered event or fact, the brain's wire is constantly adapting and changing in this neural network. This is called neuroplasticity. The stronger the synaptic connections grow, the easier it is for the brain to process an event and recall stored knowledge. Now, to make this process easier to understand, let me, let me put it in other terms. Imagine the synapses in your brain being like a path through the woods. If that path is left unkempt and untraveled, the grass begins to grow up. Weeds and shrubs start to spread over it. Over time, that path will become hidden, hard to follow, and potentially lost forever. But if that path is regularly traveled, with the, greed, with the grass and weeds continually trodden down, it's much easier to find, to follow, and to lead you to your destination. Well, that's sort of how the brain and knowledge works. The more it is used, the deeper it is entrenched, and the easier it is recall and then to put into practice. But it's also important to, that that use continues over time. <coughs> Even deeply entrenched knowledge will fade if left completely abandoned. Thousands of years ago, the philosopher Aristotle observed this phenomenon when he said, it is frequent repetition that produces a natural tendency. In other words, 
do something. Do it regularly, and it will become part of who you are. But as Dr. Ebbinghaus described, if you don't use it, you will lose it. Point number two regarding how knowledge can be lost is from lack of use. Point number two is knowledge is lost from lack of use. Now we could go on and also talk about the power of association and strengthening memory, especially since it's Memorial Day weekend, right? So every year we have these events to help us remember things of the past. Not only do people do that, and man has done that, God also does that through his holy days. But for the sake of time, I want to skip over that topic and come to the next point on how knowledge is lost. The next point has to do with a desire for truth. Point number three is, Knowledge is lost when truth is not desired. Point number three is, knowledge is lost if truth is not desired. You know, one of the greatest ironies of our modern world is how man has been able to attain such incredible knowledge, while at the same time forgetting some of the most fundamental truths. Consider for a moment. In the past 100 years, how man has split the atom traveled to the moon, cloned sheep, connected the world, decoded the human genome, and even sent a satellite beyond our solar system. And yet, despite all these incredible achievements and the immense knowledge required to achieve them, many in our society have forgotten that loving a person does not require having sex with them. In fact, except within marriage, quite the opposite is the case. I mean, drink water here. They've forgotten that little boys are inherently different than little girls. That how you feel doesn't determine facts. That accepting your anatomy is part of accepting who you really are. That mercy and forgiveness are cornerstones of human compassion. That unborn children are human. That human life is different than animals. That not all religious ideas are equal. That good and evil do exist. That there is a devil that this planet has a creator, that man has a responsibility to care for this planet, but care for this planet is not more important than man, that greed is not good, that corporate profits don't excuse treating faithful, hardworking employees like disposable commodities, that laws govern moral behavior just as much, if not even more, than they govern the physical world, and that absolute truth does exist. In our fast-paced, ever-changing, advanced technology world, our phones are getting smarter, our information growing vaster. But for most, the ability to discern the most simple truths of life is becoming more and more obscure. Turn to Romans 1, verse 20. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul explains how it is that man can become so technologically advanced and yet so backward in discerning fundamental truths. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, notice this, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. You know, the earliest of mankind has always known that God existed. Adam and Eve knew it. Their children knew it. And at least to some degree, that knowledge is passed down to their children and their children's children. 
Not only that, Noah and his family also knew God. And certainly they also passed some of that knowledge down to their children and their children's children. You know, a while ago I was going through a book about evolution titled Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Throughout this book, I found it intriguing how many references the author made to the Bible. He even had a chapters titled with the names such as The Tree of Knowledge, A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve, The Flood, and a title I thought was very appropriate for a book about evolution, History's Biggest Fraud. Now, this author was clearly exposed to the Bible, but he had a very strong bias against it. In one portion of the book, he explains how man has the ability to imagine things that do not exist. And this, he's certainly right. Man can imagine all kinds of things that don't exist. But then he suggests that this imagination is what gave rise to religion and belief in the supernatural. Of course, what he failed to recognize was that from the very beginning, man was exposed to a spirit world. He didn't invent it. The first two people, Adam and Eve, (coughs) knew it from firsthand experience. And they passed that knowledge down to their children. Additionally, some of their children experienced the spirit world themselves firsthand. And they passed that knowledge down to their children. But like a game of telephone, as the information is passed from one generation to the next, it was corrupted and warped and twisted until its resemblance to the truth was almost completely lost. So the point is this. People did not invent God. They did not invent the concept of God or the spirit world. Whatever people believe about these things today are either relics of past knowledge or the result of more recent experiences. I'm not going to elaborate on um, recent encounters because it's sort of scary when you think about the types of encounters people have with the spirit world today. So let's move past that to verse 21. Romans 1, verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. People get so warped and twisted inventing all sorts of evolutionary explanations of things, they convince themselves of their own ideas. They grow egos the size of Texas in the process, or or maybe we should say Google, since Google's so large. You know, these people, they think they so much, and yet they lack the most fundamental of truths. Professing to be wise, they became fools, Paul writes. Of course, God makes it clear that the answer is right there in front of them, if only they'd be willing to see. Draw back for a moment to verses 18 and 19. Let's take a look what I'm talking about. Verse 18, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And notice this next part. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. (coughs) Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Continuing on in verse 24. (coughs) Let me get some water here. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due." And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind 
to those things which are not fitting. Now, it isn't as if Paul is describing people here who didn't have knowledge. I mean, consider who this letter was addressed to. This, is, this letter is addressed to the people at Rome. Rome was one of the most advanced cities on earth. It is a place where many of the concrete structures I talked about were built thousands of years ago and still stand today. Incredible feats of engineering, even among today's standards, places like the Pantheon, the Palatine, among others. The people Paul writes about had knowledge. They had lots of knowledge. Knowledge about concrete, construction, warfare, and conquest. They just didn't have the most important kind of knowledge, and that is the ways of God. But why? Why did they lack it? Well, notice the word like here in verse 28. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. A key reason the knowledge of God was not retained is because they had, people had no desire for it. They did not want God in their lives. They didn't want to listen to what he had to say. So they ignored him. They ignored his teaching. And not only did they ignore his teaching, they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. They even went so far to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the reason they did all this was to ultimately to justify what they wanted to do. Verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of enmity, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are worshipers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. People can invent all sorts of evolutionary explanation of things trying to um, you know, imagine God away. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Dropping down now to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. We're not just talking about the Romans here, but really most civilizations in the course of human history. Point number three again is, knowledge is lost when truth is not desired. Earlier I described this picture called Earthrise. This photo was taken from the Apollo 8 mission on December 24th of 1968. During that first orbit of the moon, not only did the crew of Apollo 8 take this very famous photo, they also began to read from a book. The next year, in 1969, the United States Post Office released a stamp featuring this Earthrise photo. On that stamp were the first four words the astronauts read. The stamp quoted the first four words of Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Of all the knowledge out there, there is no more knowledge more important than this. Knowing there is a God... And knowing that this book is his word, it changes everything. As we read in the book of Romans, people who don't believe these words will go their own way, do their own thing, and live lives that revolve around their own ideas instead of conforming to God's way of life. But knowing God's truth and embracing it, it produces an entirely different result. Believing what God indeed said as recorded in this book, the Bible, is so very important because it lays the whole foundation of truth. 
You know, today in the United States, it's hard to imagine scientific or government organizations paying homage to God's Word. While the U.S. in the late 1960s may have been far from godlike, the astronauts, in fact, closed the remarks that day with wishing the world a Merry Christmas. So there's no question that the U.S., you know, has not always been, certainly has not always been godlike, far from it. But as time has moved on, the U.S. has drifted even farther than, from God than ever before. Ironically, it seems that the farther that mankind has explored in the dark beyond, the farther they've strayed from the light of God's Word. Many in our society run to and fro, and knowledge has certainly increased. And while this nation has grown extremely technologically advanced, they've also lost their love for truth. What about you? Do you still love the truth? Is there ever a time when you put your own thoughts or other people's thoughts above what you read in Scripture? Have the most fundamental truths of life been blurred from society's or Satan's seeds of doubt? Let no one fool you. God's Word is the foundation of truth. It deals in reality. Its instructions are just as relevant today as they were nearly 2,000 years ago. Therefore, as Mr. Armstrong used to encourage, don't believe me, believe your Bible. In today's message, we covered three ways in which knowledge can be lost. They included, number one, the seeds of doubt. Number two, a lack of use. And number three, the, when the truth is not desired. In relation to these three points, ask yourself, when it comes to squelching the seeds of doubt, do you diligently prove all things and hold fast to that which is good? When it comes to continually using God's knowledge, do you keep his word at the forefront of your mind? Talk of it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and rise up. When it comes to desiring God's word, do you value it more than fine rubies, gold, or precious jewels? Do you have a genuine love for truth? You see, preserving the knowledge of God takes diligence, repetition, and desire. It doesn't just happen on its own. You must love it, use it, prove it. If not, it will drift into the dark abyss, eventually vanishing from your mind. I hope you will not fall prey to this trend consuming our nation and modern world, but will be courageous enough and continue to preserve the knowledge of God.